Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Bonnie Southgate. She's a sports therapist, a Pilates therapist, and a biomechanics specialist. And we're going to talk about a syndrome called Ehlers-Danlos, E-H-L-E-R-S, Dash D A N L O S Ellers Donlow syndrome as it relates to her training and her work. So Bonnie, thanks for coming. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you would tell me a bit about your background, how did you get into you know physical therapy and uh, those related topics? Originally, actually, I was uh, a ballet dancer, so I um, kind of started out in a career with ballet and danced with American Ballet Theatre and the Royal Ballet. And I had quite a lot of injuries, didn't have a career as long as I would have expected um, because of those things. And it wasn't until much later that I discovered that I had a condition called hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And I think I was drawn to the rehabilitation really because of my own injury, past injuries, but also my sort of love for dance. And I I originally went down the sports therapy route because I thought I would be going more towards the dance side of rehabilitation, which is why I did that rather than physiotherapy initially. And I sort of ended up really then being or gravitating towards other people who had stability issues and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and have really made it my sort of career's passion working with this group of people. Um, Mm. Yeah. So I've heard there's different types of uh, Ehlers-Danlos, what it affects. What have you experienced in your own life, if you're open to talking about it, and what do you see with the people you work with? Yes, there are are actually 14 different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. The type of Ehlers-Danlos that I have, which is called the hypermobile type, is the most common type. The others are really extremely rare, Um, but the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos is much more common than 
is even now currently thought about. And there's lots of different opinions on, on this. I won't state what it is because I think there needs to be more research done on the sort of figures. Um, from my own experience, I had quite a lot of dislocations and subluxations throughout my life and career. Tissues are more fragile, so things like bleeding and things like dislocations are much more common. Um, there are also a lot of other things that can can go along with this condition. Which they consider comorbidities, so they're not actually part of the diagnostic criteria, but can also be quite debilitating. Things like postural orthostatic tachycardia, which actually they're finding a lot of long COVID patients are struggling with, and other things like gastric issues. Um, heart issues, vascular issues, and things like that. So how does this uh, necessitate you to change your training? And how does it change how you work with people? When I originally sort of um, decided to go down the more rehabilitation route, it was a bit of a journey with my own body because um, I really did struggle with rehabilitation in normal ways. I found that not a lot of it was helping me or working. So the Pilates equipment was brilliant because it offered resistance. So it took me down sort of exploration into the effects of um resistance training, other different techniques, which I use, which are some things called METs. So post-isometric relaxation exercises rather than stretching, um, different ways that I could deal with my own body and rehabilitation, which sort of have helped me in, in helping others. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> well, one thing jumps out. You said there's a certain kind of stretching you do that's different from traditional stretching. Can you talk about that and what's that like? Yeah. So with traditional, obviously, when you have a connective tissue disorder, stretching is very controversial. And also, if you have joints that might dislocate, going to that end of range where you're actually going into a stretch can still feel good, but can be a bit of a dangerous place to go. And there is research out there that would say that static stretching weakens you in what we call the eccentric phase of muscle use. So that's like the release of muscles. As part of my training, I learned something called METS, so muscular and energy release techniques. And those techniques take a muscle to length, but then they use a contraction to help with the release. So in terms of hypermobility, still contracting the muscle is a much better option where you're not actually lengthening the tissue, but you're changing its neurological function to relax into a lengthened position. So you're not ever stretching it beyond where it should be. So, so that's a really useful technique that I've used on myself and, and some of my clients and seems to get much better results at kind of releasing tension in the muscles rather than stretching. Would you mind just giving a very quick example? Let's say I'm going to, um, and I'm going to like, uh, stretch my hamstring on my leg, you know, what would I do normal stretching and what would I do with your method of stretching with the, the Mertz method? Okay. What I'm going to do is change that from a hamstring to a quadricep. Cause I always think with hamstrings, neurological tension gets too involved. Um, okay. so, um, like if I was to stand up and hold my foot and take my, bend my knee, take my quad into length, rather than just pulling it into a stretch, what I would do is hold it. And I would come to the point where I feel the tension, but I would just back off it. And then I would push my foot down into my hand. 
So I would be actually activating the muscle only very lightly. So not like huge strength. So it might be maximal 20% effort put into my hand. And then after that, you only hold it for a few seconds. I would relax and then it might take on a new length. And then I would hold it there again and push down into my hand. So I'm actually recruiting the quadricep. And then I would hold it there for say five seconds and then relax again. And I would do that maybe up to three times. It's it more than three times won't make any changes. It's usually in the first couple times that you do the MET that you get the changes in length. So that would be a, an example. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Does this stretch you very much? It sounds like you're contracting into a uh, a different position instead of stretching as much. I mean, what's it like when a, a non-Ellers-Donald's person does this versus like someone with EDS? It works really well for a non-EDS person because I learned this technique not for EDS, but for sort of, you know, sports sports therapy and it's more it would be more like a pnf stretch except that you wouldn't be using a maximal effort in the contraction and you would be more static so you would be still taking that muscle to length to a lengthened position or to that point where you feel just the very minimal stretch um each time you do it so you're still lengthening the muscle as you do it it's probably easier to show it unfortunately it's a bit harder on the podcast oh no it's okay <laughs> Yeah, I've done this stretch for you. You grab your ankle and you take it to, uh, you know, your your ankle to your butt, essentially to stretch yeah. your quadriceps. Yeah. So it would be exactly the same, except you would push your foot down into your hand. So you would actually recruit the muscle and then let it go. So you should try it. Mm. Try it sometime. It's a really great technique for releasing muscle tension. So you're, okay, so you're contracting in a somewhat of a stretched, I mean, barely stretched position. Exactly. And what, when you release, it helps you release into the stretch more or what happens after you? It basically, it's a neurological response. So because we have something called the stretch reflex. And so if you imagine you've taken your muscle to length, and this is really simplifying it, by the way, you take that muscle to length and then you recruit it a little bit and the brain sees you as recruiting your muscle and when you relax it says relax the muscle so it relaxes it a bit longer but because you've already taken that muscle to length when it says relax a bit longer then you get length in the muscle and and a sense of of longer it it only really takes your muscle to where its original length should be so you're not going to stretch the muscle beyond where it should be going which is why it's beneficial to people who are hypermobile are there any other uh, techniques that we can dissect a little bit like this? This is really cool. I'm not expecting <laughs> people to do it from just listening, but they could at least look it up and learn and they'll get a better idea of what's going on. So METS is like a title for a group of things. So what, what I've been talking about there is a post-isometric relaxation technique. 
So it's a PIR. And then you've got reciprocal inhibition, which actually fits into the context of METs, which is like if you contract your bicep, your tricep releases. Um, so that's another what they would consider met. And then this is really an osteopathic technique. It falls into a couple other types, which would be your eccentric type, which is much more like your PNF stretch, where you continually move it into length as you're recruiting. It, the only difference is that it's a bit lighter, the effort. And then you have what they call the pulse technique, where you actually pulse the muscle very lightly um, again, and then take it into length. So these are just all different techniques developed by an osteopath and and used for relaxing. There's another technique that the osteopaths also use, which is quite good, which is called strain counter strain, where you actually do the reverse. You, you take the muscle into the most contracted state to the point where it almost relaxes it because you lose the stretch mechanism or the stretch reflex. And that would be in something that's kind of maybe it could work in a muscle and spasm or something that's super tight and makes the person kind of doubled over or almost causes a cramp. So there's lots of different techniques you can try and use, which are really cool. And they, they work on everybody. You know, they were taught to me not for hypermobiles, but every course I've ever been on or or any training that I've done, I kind of it gets converted into Ehlers-Danlos syndrome in my brain and how it might work on my population. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> what do you notice about the people that you train? What do they need that people that don't have this issue don't need? And, you know, how do they need to train differently? So it sounds like they need to warm up and stretch differently. But what else is different? Yeah, lots of things. So it depends on the actual person coming in because I see two really distinct types of people that come in with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or a hypermobility syndrome disorder because that's very much the same thing that doesn't quite fit the criteria. They're virtually interchangeable, but you get ones that are just kind of floppy and really like have no proprioception of where they are in space and they have no control. They don't know where they are, their limbs, and I have to use props and I have to use hands-on and all kinds of things to try and help them to know where they are positionally. Um, and then you've got the other ones who might have more of the comorbidities where something called POTS, orthostatic intolerance, means that if they are upright, they might get really dizzy and they can actually pass out. So I might do more exercises that are either lying down or more sitting based rather than standing up to accommodate them. So it's really much based on what walks in the door and so what their primary issues are. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But what are some exercises that let's say, you know, people with EDS or POTS or hypermobility should really not do and really need to modify? Like what, you know, if people don't have the, the benefit of your knowledge and experience, they're just going to a regular trainer what do they do that messes them up? I don't know if you get any stories or, or if you have any. Uh... Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> where do I begin? Yeah, specificity is really important in this group because they have this lack of proprioception. A normal movement that somebody would do, it might all go wrong and they can dislocate a joint. So they often need really good eyes on them to help them know where they are and what they're doing. You know, generally, if they want to do like if they're going to a gym and they want to work out and stuff like that, they may choose something like a rower as a, or a bike as opposed to running because the upright might not agree, say, with somebody who's got 
orthostatic intolerance, for an example, from myself, and I'm somebody who's quite fit and I've rehabbed myself. But if I went on a running machine and I really sort of ran as fast as I could for three minutes, my hands and feet go black (laughs) because I don't have good blood flow and things like that. So I tend to do much better on something like a rowing machine where I'm either sitting or I've got resistance again, because the resistance provides feedback into my system where on its own, it's kind of doesn't know what it's doing or where it is in space. It's a bit like if you were to try and open a door that was kind of creaky and rusty hinges, as opposed to something that was really well oiled, there's it takes a lot of different effort to open the oiled door to the resisted door. So a lot of times... I could also see if you had a door that was super oiled and you pulled on it with the normal strength, it might fly open and like hit you in the face or something. Exactly. That's a perfect analogy. And that's a bit what it's like. Also, like in terms of training, sometimes if you do training with people and normally it would strengthen the normal person because of the lack of resistance from your own body, you don't really need that much muscle activity. So you're not getting necessarily the benefits that the other person is. So, and also like in terms of weight training, I prefer the machines to the free weights, at least initially so that there's a more gradual buildup to the muscle contraction. Um, I would aim to learn to use the free weights because it's a more reactive contraction by the muscle. And that's something that would need to be learned. But I think we tend to have more slow twitch muscle than fast twitch. So it can take time to kind of rev up the engine of the muscles to actually work. So I tend to I tend to do everything graded and it tends to be graded through more slow recruitment into the faster recruitment as, as people progress and get stronger. So do EDS people take longer to get strength and get in shape? And are there certain things they just will, they just can't compete on? You know, like let's say certain exercises or just raw strength. Is there just a, a fundamental limit that's much lower for them? Or what have you observed? Well, no, I, in terms of muscle strength, funny enough, muscles aren't as affected in hypermobiles. It's really the connective tissue. So it's the stuff that connects the muscle to the bones that's more affected. So um, studies have been done that say that muscle strength can be developed as quickly in somebody with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but usually where they start at is a much lower place. So I like to say, like, if you were going to do the, the couch to 5k, that the deconditioned person would be on the couch. The hypermobile person is buried underneath the couch somewhere. So they got to get out from under the couch before they can even start um, to train. So they're slower only because they tend to start from a more weakened place. And as far as the slowness and the slow twitch, it's more because things like the receptors that fire the muscles up have more collagen in them, particularly the ones at the end of the muscles. So they tend to be better at like the long distance or the slower things, explosive type of stuff, where actually when you look at explosive type of movement, you get more recoil and more from the connective tissue system, like in the the tendons you get. Do you think that EDS people have an advantage in the endurance part, or is it just because they have to train that way? The ones that are successful trained and trained uh, will tend to be more endurance type athletes than explosive fast ones. I think if you're talking athletes, possibly difficult. Well, just to people, really. just people that get in good shape. Like, you know, the EDS people you have that you've had for a while that get in good shape. Do they, 
I guess they have to do endurance stuff. They really can't do explosive. And so they tend to their muscle fibers and all that evolve in that direction. Yeah, I think they definitely don't do explosive. To be honest, the people that I work with, a lot of them are in wheelchairs or can't get out of bed. So I'm not even oh, talking okay. about athletic or getting into that realm. Ehlers Danlos syndrome can be like severely debilitating to the point where they would be happy to go out for a five minute walk or do their own grocery shopping. So oh, I no. mean, there will be, I'm a real exception in terms of having a career that I did. Most people wouldn't get there. And I think from my perspective, that was from just mental attitude, but also a lot of medication <laughs> to get me through it. Um, right. it, it you know, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome on its own, in terms of this podcast, um, people out there need to understand that it is a seriously debilitating condition most of the time. Well, you said some of the nastier versions of it seem to be rare. And then you mentioned some people have hypermobility disorders that are not EDS. And I know you're not a doctor of this, but could you just comment on some of the stuff you've seen, some of the variation? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the rare types, they're so really severe. I mean, the classical type of Ehlers-Danlos tends to be those pictures of the people that can stretch their skin a mile out and, and stuff like that. So you've got other ones which cause brittle bones or all their teeth to fall out, things like that. So there's different types of Ehlers-Danlos that affect very specific genes. The hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorder is the one type they haven't found the genetic cause for. So they're not actually even sure um, what it is that causes it. They're looking at maybe multiple genes, but in actual fact, the hypermobile type and the hypermobility syndrome um, disorder do seem almost to be more debilitating in some ways. I mean, they're all, they are all debilitating in different ways, but the hypermobile type is what affects the joints significantly in terms of stability and dislocation. So, you know, it's, it's really difficult if you try and go for a walk and your knee dislocates you know, or your ankle dislocates. So, you know, the rehabilitation can be really long and it varies from individual hypermobility syndrome disorder is a spectrum. So it's a spectrum from say somebody who might have one really seriously unstable joint all the way to a spectrum of hypermobility syndrome disorder, where they might have lots of dislocating joints, but they don't quite meet the criteria for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which have other things in it like hernias and prolapses and other things involved that, that you need to have in order to meet that specific criteria. So there's more tissue involvement or there might be heart conditions um, also involved um, that put you into that criteria of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So it goes beyond the kind of just joint hypermobility into other areas. Is that Okay. Of the people that you work with, what age ages are they? Are they all over the place? And when people with EDS uh, get older, uh, I guess you'll define older. At which point do they seem to have a lot of trouble? Or if they're exercising, do they continue on as, as regular people would? You know, yes, they get older, they lose muscle mass, but they're still functional. What have you observed? Um, so what I've observed is there seems to be more problems with females. So whether there's hormone involvement in that, in that or not. And often you will see problems in puberty. You can get kids who've got really a lot of problems. They tend not to diagnose kids with, say, EDS because 
children's bones haven't come together anyway, so they're all a bit hypermobile, so it can be difficult to diagnose um, unless unless there's really a real family predisposition. It is an inherited condition, so part of the criteria would be other family members with it. Puberty seems to set people off. And actually sometimes like with women, menopause can make them worse as well. So there just seem to be a hormonal element that makes people worse. Males can struggle with it, but they tend to have less problems. Probably the testosterone makes the muscles stronger and helps with the joint stability. I see a real spectrum of age. So I've got really young clients. I've seen a four-year-old and I go all the way through to, I have a woman in her late eighties. So you do see the whole spectrum. It seems really individual as to when people struggle. Some people seem to be okay. And then, you know, they get older and they struggle or some people struggle right from the beginning, or, you know, it may be that it's something like a trauma or ailment or an illness that sets them off as well. So it seems to be sometimes something like that makes them worse. You know, some people consider it progressive. I don't necessarily see it as progressive. I think, unfortunately, a lot of them don't get the right care. You know, they're not dealt with very well. So, you know, the longer they go without good, good care, the worse they get and then the harder it is to get out of it or to get better. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's very variable from person to person. Okay. What's next for you with your training of people? Like, are you looking for additional methods or is what the set of tools you have right now work really well? Like what, what are your thoughts for the future? Um, yeah. Like from my perspective as an MSK um, specialist, I think my tools work super well and I'm actually writing a, I'm nearly complete with writing a book on management of it for practitioners like myself. Um, My clients seem to do really well. I'd love to get um, involved in research because certain things I do have, have seemed to be incredibly beneficial. And for example, I had a, a young girl who was pretty quite severe and bad and she's now gone off to university and joined the tennis club, which is like, outrageous um, for most people to think of. I'm almost scared to say that. So I'm always learning. I spend every night learning. I'm constantly looking at new things. Um, It's really great because I've got the condition. So I experiment on myself. So um, there was just something on Twitter the other day talking about using cuffs um, for training and gaining muscle strength quicker. And so, you know, I was in the studio the next day putting a cuff around my leg. So I'm like always experimenting with new things. I don't think we'll ever um, be exhausted by opportunities to learn more. I certainly am not. And from other individuals and their experiences, I learn from every client who comes in the door. You know, I'm challenged by people all the time and their own stories. So, Lots, lots to learn. There's a lot of research out there trying to look at different causes and different ways to help people as well. So, um, do, you yeah. have, do you have any insight when you get a new client? And do most of them know they have EDS or hypermobile disorders or POTS, or do they have to be diagnosed? And if anyone needs help in getting diagnosed as to the type and severity, do you have any insights there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, originally when I was working in my clinic, I would spot people who hadn't been diagnosed. I now run a support group in my area 
for Ellers Downloads UK. So the majority of people now coming to me do know they have a diagnosis or some of them know they have, they worked out that they've got it, but they, they struggle to actually gain the diagnosis. So I can take them through the criteria. I'm quite happy to do that. I can't actually do the diagnosis, but if they do fit the criteria, then I can send them off to to the experts that I know can give them that diagnosis. Um, again, that's one of the big problems is getting diagnosis, um, certainly here in the UK. And I know in the States as well, um, it's a bit of a struggle. So often I'll have to send them to a private rheumatologist or, or somebody in London who I know will give them that diagnosis. And they all get it once they go to the right professionals. Um, in terms of other types of EDS, I've seen maybe not so much EDS. I've seen Marfan come in the door and I can help them, like guide them towards the right people for their diagnosis. And classical, that's the other one that tends to come in. Um, haven't really seen anybody with vascular EDS or any of the other types because they tend to be so severe um, that they do get picked up. And some of them, you know, maybe don't come through my door because they're nervous to even do exercise, um, which is unfortunate. So, you know, anyone who does listen to this and, and wants some help, I'm I'm quite happy, happy and feel educated enough to help them as well. Well, that's really excellent, Bonnie. Uh, where can people find that information from you? Um, even if they're not local to you, uh, where can they go? Um, so there's a lot of information available on like the Ellers Danlos Society. If you're American, that's it's an international charity, but it's run very much in by Americans and in America. There's also very much involvement with English medical people, but that spans the globe. So the Ellers Danlos Society is everywhere, everywhere. And there's lots of information for people on there. And there's also a register of professionals, um, which I think may be where you actually got my name from. Um, and there's a reg register for professionals in each country, like around the world, where people can then find individuals who have expertise in dealing with um, people in this area or in with this okay. um, problem. With these conditions, yeah. Well, Bonnie, thanks so much for coming. It's been really interesting to learn from you and learn more about this condition. And thanks so much for what you do. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me to chat with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.